0: Hi, guys, welcome back. Hi, everybody. We have an amazing guest today, Allie Cutler.
1: She's a plus size model and a mental health advocate.
0: She was the first plus size model to ever grace a billboard or grace a campaign at Victoria's Secret or for Victoria's Secret, I should say. She's been modeling now for almost 10 years. She said nine years, nine yeah.
1: Years. She's working on her book on cancel culture, and she's going to do a TED talk around that as well.
0: And what she has to say about cancel culture and why cancel culture is effective is super interesting, so please stay tuned till the end. She also has a podcast called The Love, Love I Give. Give. love you the love love you you give give. the love you give definitely check that out as well and check her out on instagram after the show
1: and she's so beautiful and just is such a very inspiring soul that i'm so excited to have her
0: this is a really impactful episode i think for anyone to hear whether you're a model or not it's very relatable so stay tuned First off, thank you for coming on. We're so excited to chat with you. I'm I Yola. Do. I'm Marta's co-host, and I'm a big fan. So, Aww. but Marta, how did you guys meet? I know you have a cute story.
1: We met in London a year ago on a job for Nasty Girl. and it was you know when you like go on those like influencer trips, you never know what to expect. And I yeah. was actually really uh, you know pleased when I got there that the girls that we were you know doing this partnership with were so fun and cool, and you were like so chill and like uh, the convos were just like so open and I'm like wait all the trips should be like that I know and then we went to see your pictures for your campaign for Victoria's Secrets and that was like such a cute little bonding moment after just like meeting you so uh, that was that was I was so proud of you and I just barely like met you so
2: Oh, that's so sweet. I know. I felt the same.
0: Tell us a little bit about that campaign. Yeah, I want to know. I mean, for me, obviously, we didn't get a chance to meet, but I had, you know, as a journalist, I had heard about you and uh, being the first plus size model, which long overdue, which we'll get into later, but how did you get Victoria's Secret to, how did you get to work with them? How did they find you? How, I'm sure that wasn't. The, an easy journey or like, you know, just like, oh yeah, you have, you got the campaign. So fill mm-hmm. us in on, on the behind the scenes of how you finally, you got to be the first plus size model. And, you know, it's so long overdue. And I think I used to, as a kid, when the Victoria Secret magazines would come, you know, at home, I used to look through them and, and compare myself to the Victoria Secret models. And I was like, I remember doing this at age, eight, nine, 10, Mm. like very young. And I wish that they had more women like you, um, years ago. And it, I feel like it was so long overdue, but, um, I would love to, to know how, Mm -hmm. how you got there.
2: So I, I ended up working with Victoria's Secret because I actually didn't even know I was going to do a job with them. Um, I was told this was this Blue Bella campaign. And on the job title, I saw Blue Bella uh, VS. And in my head, I was like, I don't know why, but I just thought that meant Blue Bella versus something. Like I I literally thought that there was like some weird competition thing going on into the job I was doing. It's, I really didn't ask for clarification. You're a model, you get a job, you show up to the job, you do it, you don't really ask them any questions. And then there was like, a couple of weeks went by and then Victoria's Secret reached out to me and they're like, Hey, we would love to have you for this press day. And I was like, sorry, what like press day for what? And they're like, um, the, the campaign that you did. And I was like, I did a campaign for you. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, we like, that's what you did. And I was like, I did not know that at all. Um, That's great. Thank you for letting me know. And yeah, of course, I would love to do the press day. And I showed up and I went to this, um, you know, the headquarters, the flagship store of Victoria's Secret. And it was like all the old angels on the wall. And they were like Candace and like Adriana Lima and Giselle. And I was like, walking, I'm like, am I fucking really here right now? Like I'm in this, like, I never ever in my wildest dreams thought that I would be attending a press day here. And like, I was the, the pre- like people, were, the press were there for me. Um And so it was absolutely whirlwind, crazy, um, And like you said, you know, we we didn't see there were no models that looked like me. There were no models that were above like a size six in Victoria's Secret for such a long time. Um, And because of that, I think I kind of stopped looking at their, you know, I stopped looking at their catalogs. I stopped watching the catwalk. I stopped um, wearing their lingerie because I just was like, well, this isn't for me. And then after I did that campaign with them, I was like, wow, I mean, imagine what it would have felt like. To see someone who I thought reflected me in the catalogs for Victoria's Secret, I think I would have just felt so normal, I guess. So it was an amazing feeling.
0: Yeah. And I, to, yeah. And to your point, I've never, I think a lot of women have struggled with body issues. And I, when, for me growing up, I got boobs really young and hips really young. And I really had a hard time and still sometimes like, oh, I'm too curvy or like, you know, posting pictures of me in a bikini and feeling like, you know, even though I, I love my body, but like, are other people going to think it's fat because I have curves or something like that? And those, and those inside voices kind of cultivate from a very young age. And so these billboards and, and these catalogs and magazines and being able to go online and Instagram, everything, and seeing people that do reflect real society and real women is so, so important. Did you ever, growing up, I mean, before you started modeling, did you have a struggle with loving your body and being confident and, and growing into yourself that, to the person you are today?
2: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that is very common. I think it's like the most common thing. It's the thing that unites most women I talk to, most strong women I know. Um, when you really get down to, and you really get vulnerable in talking about your body, I, I I feel like it's every every woman I know, and for me that I was no exception. Um, I played soccer from a really young age, and I um, you know was working out all the time. I went on to play professional soccer. And the whole time that I was playing soccer, doing sprints, running, waking up at 6am to work out the whole time, I was just like, dealing with this crippling anxiety and depression. Because I just thought I was the biggest, baddest piece of shit ever. And it's so crazy to reflect on that. Because, like, I was, I was, you know, I was working out more than most people and I, and I was like, you know, extremely healthy and I still felt that way. Um, I, you know, throughout my childhood, I'm actually writing a book right now and I talk a lot about these experiences and throughout my childhood, there was just so many times that this kind of narrative was fed to me, whether it was, um, you know, guys in, in middle school, like there was one guy named Kent. This always stands out in my head. He like invited me to his, uh, well, no, he didn't invite me to his middle school party. And i was standing in a group with kids. And he went, Hey, Allie, you can come to my party just as long as you don't eat everything. And I was like in sixth grade at the time. And I just remember being like, Oh my God, Oh my God. Oh my God. Kids are
1: mean. Yeah. It was like the worst. They're so mean.
2: How did you react to that at that age? So looking back on it, I wish I had been like, bitch, your name is Kent and you are wearing like an Abercrombie and Fitch popped collar. And you like, you're like, you are not cool at all. I wish I would have said these things, but at the time you're just kind of like, Oh my God. Like he just called out the thing that I hope I wish and hope that no one notices. Like, I hope no one can see that I'm fat. I hope no one notices I'm fat. It's like we go around and like my whole life I would like crouch over my, you know, fat rolls or I would wear, Clothes that were just a bit baggier to cover them. Like, I'd be like, maybe I can disguise the fact and no one will ever see that I'm fat. And it that that stuck with me for such a long time. And like kids like Ken, you know, they're all too common. And it's people like that who shape this narrative that we tell ourselves. And then you go through the rest of your life, and like, no matter what happens, no matter what you look like, you look in the mirror and you're like, Oh, I'm invited to the party just as long as I don't eat eat anything, you know, like that's the stuff that stays with you. And I think that a lot of the times the, the, um, stories that we tell ourselves are informed by what happens a lot. I've seen a lot of research that says it starts around middle school that for a lot of kids in like seventh grade seems to be about the time that like girls and guys start to become really aware of their role in like the hierarchy and in the group status. And you become aware of like, what is cool and what's not cool. And that's when a lot of bullying starts. And it was the same for me. And I would go throughout high school, up until college, basically up until I started modeling, just believing that I had no worth because I wasn't skinny or pretty. That's what I thought. Did
1: you have to, uh, what was the? Did you have to go to therapy to like work on that? Or what was your... How did you like take care of your mental health at that age when you realized that you were basically being bullied and like you were being like told things about the way you looked that were so f- offensive and abusive and like how did you deal with that? What what was it that you did at that time to like um, kind of like get over it or work on it?
2: I think at the time I didn't have a coping mechanism and that's why it felt worse. Mm-hmm. I think at the time I you know, didn't know about therapy. I didn't know who to talk to about it. I definitely didn't want to talk to my family about it because they had their own shit where, you know, they like my dad had his issues with weight and he used to comment on my mom's appearance all the time. So I didn't feel safe going home to talk to them about it. And I think I just, you know, there were so many nights I can remember just like going home as like a seventh grader crying in my bed, pulling out, you know what it was, what I did actually reflecting on it now. I think I, I, my form of therapy was fantasy because I discovered Harry Potter Mm. and I, I just like read the books like incessantly, like every night, I think I, I read Harry Potter, one Harry Potter, two Harry Potter, three Harry Potter, like, and then I would read it again and I'd find like Artemis Fowl or I'd find like, um, Lord of the Rings and I'd find all these fantasy books and I would just read them. And I don't know why that helped me. I think there's an element of escapism and an element of like stealing away to like a new world where none of this mattered. And like, you could pretend that you were some gorgeous elven queen and like, you know, I don't know. I think that was my coping. I
1: used to watch the Lord of the Rings every day for like a whole year when I was, I think, around 14, 15. And I don't know, to me, it was like another life. And I would just like, even just the soundtrack and the music i was just dreaming and my mom was like what is wrong with her and i wanted to go to new zealand to see where they shot it
0: and it was i feel the same way yeah, yeah. Like and we're style. nodding our heads like shake it's cuz sa- it similarly healing. yeah it was very i harry potter it was the first set of books i actually read cover to cover like the first series and narnia too was another yeah. another one where i felt safe you felt safe in in those books or in those stories,
2: yeah. Well, you say that about Lord of the Rings, and I actually I have a Lord of the Rings tattoo on my spine, and it's like one of the things the tattoos I least regret. And I, it still to this day is like the most. I don't know, like it's a big part of my life and a big part of my soul. Actually, the the guy I'm with, the husband I ended up marrying, I knew I loved him from the moment that he beat me in the Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit game. I knew that. I was like, I'm going to
1: be with this guy. I'm tearing up. <laughs> this is beautiful. No, that many people connect on that because I think uh, yeah, I was, like, the only kid that, like, really loved it at that time. And I was – I had the book as well, and I read the book, but I also – any sort of, like, gadgets I could buy about it, I was, I was really, yeah, obsessed
2: with it. Me too.
0: Now, but, so obviously – we all find these coping mechanisms when we're younger or fantasies or escapisms to get us through that next day of getting bullied and self doubt and like familial issues, all these things but when you you said that you through college you kind of suffered from this kind of narrative that was built when you were younger, and then you started modeling how where did that switch happen from like being like, yeah, I'm fucking Allie Cutler and I'm hot. And, you know, telling that Kent, Abercrombie Fitch boy, like, fuck you. (laughs) Like (laughs) I can eat as much as food as I want or as little food as I want. You can't tell me what to do to, and then how did the, how do you foray into modeling? Mm.
2: I think that the confidence was, um, it started to come. I think there was a time period in high school when I had a really big growth spur and I kind of, was playing soccer at the time. And I started to thin out. And for the first time ever, boys started to notice me. And I was like, Oh my God, like I, there's boys who have crushes on me. Like I I was just so, you know, kind of entranced by that, that power. And then that kind of happened for a couple of years. And then I went back to feeling like, you know, I'm ugly and I'm fat. And then I went to college and I discovered I was playing soccer and I was, you know, a division one goalkeeper. And I was really, really good at it. And it, my, my size made me good. And I discovered um, Adderall. And I was like, oh, this drug makes me not hungry. Like, I don't get hungry on this. And I would go to practice and I would just take this Adderall and I would like, get home from practice and I'd go run for six miles. And I wouldn't eat the whole day. And I started to lose weight. And I was like, yeah, like I'm skin, like I'm getting skinny for the first time ever, you know, put aside the fact that I'm like orthorexic, bulimic, anorexic, all these different things. But I started to feel like I'm skinny. And I ended up going to London to do a year of study abroad. Um, and I was playing soccer there. And then I, I saw this advert in a magazine, and it was uh, UK's next top curvy supermodel. And they were looking for models over a size UK 12. And I was like, Okay, like I didn't even know plus size modeling was a thing. And I'm definitely have always been over a UK twelve.
0: What's that in US? And I joined it Is and I'm still f- uh eight. I think eight?
2: it's yeah. an eight. An eight. Yeah. Okay. Is it and an eight? Yeah. Yeah, it's an eight. Um And I was at the thinnest I ever was and will ever be because I was on this Adderall and I still was a UK 12, you know, I was like not eating. I was working out all the time. It was just, I'm not, my body wasn't going to go any lower than that. And I joined this competition and um, I ended up getting a contract from it. And I remember, you know, finally getting on a, on a modeling set and looking at some of these other curve models on set. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, they're bigger than me. And they're actually gorgeous. Like they move with confidence and purpose. And like, wait, if they're like, if they look that good, like, maybe I can look that good. Maybe like, this is all in my head. And I, the first, you know, the first year I did photo shoots, I remember looking at photos of myself and being like, I would go home crying. I just couldn't believe that I looked like, I was just so upset with how I looked. I thought I looked so horrible on camera. I was like, Oh my God, that girl, how, who does she think she is? Like, this girl thinks she can model. This is so lame. And eventually, something just kind of clicked. And there was this kind of like aha moment where I looked at a photo of myself, and there was like a fat roll I could see in the photo. And it didn't disgust me. And I was like, oh, that's different. I quite like the look of that you know I kind of like the look of my like I think I look quite sexy there and something just happened and it was the surrounding myself with more and more women who I felt looked like me who were like stunning and beautiful and strong that's that was what changed my mindset and you know for some people it's different some people it's like I just decided to love myself one day and that's great if that happens for them that's great for most of us it takes years and years and years of chipping away at this really really dumb patriarchal bullshit mindset that we've all been conditioned to believe and it it takes you seeing someone that walks into the room that is the thing that you that you want to be or that you didn't think you could be it, like takes a physical representation of someone and being like Oh, that's
1: the power of representation. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how effective it is. Yeah,
2: totally. Yeah, it do, it's true. It does work. And I think that, you know, people have been fighting so hard for diversity and in, in media. And I think that that's extremely well placed. I mean, it's when we see people like ourselves represented, it makes us feel like normal, normalized, you know, which is uh, amazing for the many shame issues that, Uh, a lot of people walk through this world with.
1: Fendi and Versace had their, uh, I think for the first time this year, plus size models on their fashion show. And Versace just actually had, I think four or three models last week and it was all over the news. And I was like, I'm like, well, finally. But I'm like, why did it take so long? And I hope that it sticks. And I really hope that girls... Younger girls really do feel represented. I mean, do you think that that's actually going to change the way they feel? Yeah. Like thinking about these like major fashion houses or is it just like a? some people are talking about, you know, supporting female directors is just like a trend that's going to like fade. I don't want it to be that. Is it? What, what do you think about that? I
2: think that the more and more people use them. Um, use curve girls or use black women or use trans women or whoever it is, people of different identities, the more that we, um, accept them, yeah. it, it normalizes it. And normalization is like one of the best things because it, it, um, takes away the anger or the, the ignorance that, you know, we, we fear what we don't know. And what you, when you do see something enough times, you feel like you know it. And you're like, oh, that's not scary anymore. That's and just – becomes normal yeah. just
0: by like yeah. – Yeah. So I think yeah. – do you, do you feel – for me, one thing I've struggled with, I've gone – I'm fluctuated between a size zero to a size 10, like up and down throughout my life. And I've always thought it was so strange that plus size was like a size six and up. Mm. What – or or is right. It's like size six or eight or up where most women fall in the size 10. I think the average size is 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. So what do you, how do you feel about that kind of narrative that plus size is actually that starts at a size six?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that it's messed up. I think most of us would Think it's messed up. And, you know, when I go home and I see family friends or guys talk to friends of friends, or when I'm in a bar and someone asks me what I do, I say, I'm a plus model. And they go, You? What, you? You're a plus model? And I'm like, Well, yeah, yeah, I am. You know, that's yes. And they're like, No, you're not. And I'm like, I am. And they always look so confused. And it's like, Yeah, it's messed up that, like, we, it, I don't I don't know if it's messed up as much as like defining where, where plus sizes start. I think it's the definition at all. It's the separation of like – Yeah, why
0: can't you just be a model?
2: Yeah. I, I just think even just uh, going up to like size, you know, 35, 36, it's like that's just a size. That's not – I'm not going to label it to make it different from the standard. Like the standard is like that's the size. And then we go, oh, but it's different because it's plus – and I think that like, they're all just clothes they're sizes. Like, what are we trying to do? Like putting, you know, bars to entry on our, our clothing sizes or separation or distinction. It's like, yeah, no, it's just size. Like it doesn't matter. So I, I do think that there is, there is kind of, yeah, this subtle patriarchal snake making its way up through, um, the way that we label our clothes. But I also know for a fact that I think it's size US 14 is the average size of a woman in America. And like the fact that half that is labeled plus size, like half that size, it's size six. That's like, that's insane. I mean, it's average size, like 40, I think it's forty forty eight 48% or 45% of women are a US 14. So um, yeah, I think that that is concerning.
0: As a model, I mean, I know you're a plus model, but I just want to call you a model. You're gorgeous. How can people in the industry help move away from that narrative or patriarchy that defines what size is sample and what size is plus? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think that that's such a complex thing because there's so many different there's so many different voices in the industry and there's so many different people who have power and finding like a cohesion of choice or cohesion of like actually, you know, finding a compromise is going to be really, really difficult. But what I am sure of is that, you know, there was a stylist I think her name was Fran Burns or something. She uh, took a photo of her size six model who couldn't fit in the sample clothing that she'd received from a shoot. Like they were just too small for her. And she was like, this is crazy. Like you need to change your sample sizes. You need to change them to fit the models who are, this girl is like, you know, she's underweight statistically from the rest of the population. Like she's a size six and she can't fit this. And I think for me, it's about creating sample sizes for models. Like for me on every editorial shoot I do, the one, I just did one last week, every single article of clothing it was too small for me. And there was like one, like one of the shirts, she was like, do you mind wearing it on top of your body? Like it, you it looks like you're wearing it, but it's just lying on top of your chest. I'm like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that because like, that's, you need to find stuff that fits me. And if PR you know, PR labels and brands are going to supply a clothing piece that's too small for me. I'm not going to let this brand be shouted out in a magazine because it didn't work for me. And like, it just, that's, that's so fake and false. And I feel like I'm just selling a lie. So yeah, I think that it starts with making sample sizes fit women, not women fit sample sizes. That's so key. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. So key.
1: Yeah.
0: As, um, so when you First, either, obviously it was a surprise that you were the face of Victoria's Secret. Since then, what kind of impact have have you felt in your own life and where has your modeling career gone and has it, help, has it taken your confidence even to new heights? Mm.
2: So it has and it hasn't. And I think if you talk to – I mean, Marta can probably talk about this, but if you talk to a lot of models like – there are some of the most insecure people that you've ever met, which is very interesting. I was
1: in Sardinia. I was in Sardinia when I was 12, and I was uh, buying some something, uh, some clothes with my mom, and Naomi Campbell was in the changing room, and she was trying a mini dress, and she was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm like, no, i can't. like, She thought she wasn't looking good in the dress, and I'm like, me and my mom were like, wait, what? She's like this gorgeous woman, and we were like, we walked out of the store, like kind of like quiet, not even talking. And we were like, "Wow!" So yeah, that's yeah, that's so true. It yeah,
2: it's it's a common it's a common story with a lot of models of like like we after doing this for a while, you feel like I mean, there's some days I wake up and I feel so ugly, and you think like I've been doing this for so long. You'd be like, you know, like you know, you're not you're not totally you know, ugly. Like there must be something about you that people book you for. But it's it's weird how when you do this, like I've been doing this almost I think nine years. And every year I'm like, I'll see a photo of myself taken in bad lighting or something. And I'll be like, oh my God, like my nose is huge. Or my my double chin in that photo. Or my cheeks. What's gone? Like my face is sagging. I'm getting old. What what's going on? So I think that it's interesting you know to do this for as long as i have because you do get to see the other side of like you don't always feel the most confident being a model you just don't and you're you're always being looked at you're always being judged the amount of times you're
1: so exposed all the time you're so people are just like constantly like looking at you and kind of like judging you not because they want or they're mean just because that's the job and I think that's why we always like feel a little insecure every time no matter how long we've been doing it for I think
2: totally yeah it's like the most under the microscope that you can be you have someone like looking at an image like this close of your face and being like yeah and you're like well why did you say it like that like yeah like I look good or like yeah like I'm that's bad. I I don't know. Or like the amount of times I've been on set with art directors and makeup artists whispering, and you, you as a model, you're just like, oh my god, they're talking about like how ugly I am. They must be, or like how my eyebrows are spaced too far apart, or like my nose. I don't know. Like you make up these scenarios in your head of like what they could be talking about. And if you don't get rebooked by a brand again, the first thing you think is like, I just looked you know, horrible. They thought I was like really ugly. That's what you think. And because you don't get a reason, you never get a rhyme or reason why someone doesn't book you again. It's very rare. Like you're not, your agents aren't going to find that out for you. So you, your imagination fills in the blanks with all of the things that you've told yourself in the past about why you might be subpar or why you might be, lacking in some way it just fills in the blanks like oh they didn't like my personality oh they didn't like my flabby arms or whatever it is and you just really fill it in so there is that element of like in a way in some ways I've become more insecure and then in another way I've become so much more thick-skinned that I can really just take anything at this point like if if you know, if someone was to say like the worst meanest thing to me, I'd probably would be able to take that in stride right now because I've just been, yeah, it really, it really does thicken your skin to where you can handle serious distress and emotional issues. Um So I think modeling has been really great for my mental health in some ways, and then really bad in other ways.
0: So I obviously am not a model. How do you, you know, you have to go to auditions, you have to Castings, you have to put yourself out there day and day and day again. When you get those moments of insecurities or you get those storylines in your head, how do you snap out of it when you're in a shoot or if you're at a casting mm-hmm. or an audition? Because obviously, sometimes that can show. How do you get, mm-hmm. pull yourself back in and like harness that inner confidence?
2: Mm. So sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't manage to pull back and I'll be on set and I will explain to people, this is what I've learned. If you can explain to the people around you and go, look, I'm feeling really fragile or vulnerable right now. I'm PMSing. I feel like a piece of shit. I just want to let you know. So you don't think I'm being rude or sad. I'm just going to let you know. And I feel like that's the key to a lot of um, a lot of the issues we face is the communication and the vulnerability of explaining where you are. And you'll find that most of the time people are so understanding. They're like, oh my God, girl, I totally get it. And it gets better once you've vocalized it, once you've released that from body. And then there are other days when I go, you know what? I'm going to deal with this so I don't have to go to work and be on set at this shoot and feel like this. And I'll go, I'll go into the a back room. I'll go into my, my changing room and I'll do breath work for like three minutes. And I will focus on all of the things that I'm grateful for, for all of the things that, um, you know, all of the the reasons I'm glad to be alive. Um, and I sometimes will call a friend. Sometimes I'll like find a, you know, comedy, like a little funny dog video to watch. I try to do things to change the mental state that I'm in. When I'm PMSing, that's very, very difficult. I have like really intense PMS and I just am like I think that's just like today I'm PMSing. I'm like, look, today's a write-off. I'm not gonna be my best version of myself, and that's okay too, you know?
0: We totally, totally <laughs> get that. Um, I like the entire time I'm on my period, it's like I'm I tell everyone because I'm like in so much pain. I'm barely able to like Show up to like basic things. Um, so yeah. first off, so appreciate that you showed up and and are doing
1: this with us. We feel you, girl. And last year when we were when we met in London, you were talking about uh, doing a TED talk, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah. Did, did yeah. you end up doing yeah. it,
2: or you did it? S- no, so I haven't done it yet. I'm um, currently writing the book that I will be doing the TED talk about. Um, and that's on first draft edits right now. And it's a book about, um, cancel culture, which is, uh, having a serious moment right now. Uh,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we've talked about, Martin and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah. I personally am from the school of thought that instead of canceling someone, you should find a way, at least give them a chance to like, you know, educate, see, hear them out, communicate, educate them, um, give them a chance to, to make things mm-hmm. right before you completely cancel them. Cause canceling doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't create a solution either. So what are your thoughts on cancel culture? Oh, I have so many. many, I have so many.
2: many, I've just written 90,000 words about this, but um, I think first and foremost, we need to look at where it's coming from. And I think it's coming from a place of um, we are, our communication styles have changed because of the advent of social media, right? So that's first First things foremost. when In 2010, when social media apps went onto phones, we saw polarization and conflict increase to extreme levels in America up until now, so we're the most polarized we've ever been as a country. So social media definitely has something to do with conflict and with outrage and with um, uh, polarization so first and foremost and where it comes from is the idea that um it, it actually comes from a noble idea that you know we're we want more tolerance we want less oppres- uh, less oppression we want marginalized voices to have um you know uh, a space that we want them their voices to be amplified and we want to kind of undo the the sins of our past. So all of that stuff is good. Now where my issue with cancel culture comes from is exactly what you said in that it doesn't actually address the problem. So it is a, it's addressing the symptom of the problem. The real problem itself lies far, far below to the actual ideology. Now we need to, when we cancel someone and someone says like, you know, something that's racist or uh you know, is uh, transphobic or whatever it is. We need to understand that there is systems in the world that we have that have led people to believe that. And we need to address the the systems rather than address the individual. When we do cancel someone, I have been canceled before. I know how that feels. It is, I can't even tell you, it's the most intense shame that comes up from public shaming. And shame is something, if you listen to any shame researchers talk about, it is, it is really, really bad for the body. It lasts for a really long time. It leads to anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, a lot of serious stuff that underpins most of the mental health crisis that we're experiencing today. We don't want to shame other people because it has a, a, a ripple out effect. When we shame someone, it moves outward. That person who's been ashamed, shames someone else. That person who's been ashamed, shames someone else and exponentially grows. So we need to find another method and I would also argue that, you know, a lot of people who are in favor of cancel culture say, um, "Well, you know, we're taking the power back. We're taking the power back from the oppre- the systems of oppression." And my response to that is, the systems of oppression that we've had for thousands of years use shame and conflict. This is nothing new. You're not putting, you're not using a revolutionary tactic. A revolutionary tactic would be doing things in a completely different way, like radical empathy. That's something we've never seen before. That's something that, you know, our churchy forefathers never used. They didn't use it in medieval Europe. They don't use it in the criminal justice system. They don't use it at all. And if we really want to do something different to break the system, if we want to create space for marginalized voices, if we want to stop oppression, you can't use the same tools that built the system to dismantle the system. It doesn't work. At all.
0: At all. Yeah. So it's like almost counterintuitive, Um the I think the the meaning or or the the idea behind cancel culture, as you explained, you know, makes sense, but it 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 doesn't solve the problem. So when you got canceled, um, did you experience? Anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, any of that. Yeah. Oh, oh,
2: that. oh my God. Yes. Yes. It was horrible. It was about six years ago. And I was very new to social media. And I was, I think it was twenty-five years old. Was still I, I I think people are still children up until twenty-five. Yeah, I personally. Agree. Um, yeah, it's just like a young mind and we do stupid shit all the time. And when it happened, there it was at the time so traumatic I couldn't even explain to you. Like I literally I, I had I had, you know, visions of killing myself every year. The first times I've ever experienced uh suicide ideation, um, I had these giant health problems that came up, like really bad health issues. Like my stomach was um, falling apart. I got cystic acne. I was breaking, like I was on the verge of breakup with my husband. I had two friendship breakups around me. Like there were so many things that were happening that were just like the fallout of when we're dealing with such intense shame and pain. Um, and so for me, the last six years have been healing from that. Um, and I've become a better person because of it, but it's also been rationalizing it. So why did this happen? How did this happen? Does this make sense? Are we actually achieving our end goal of, of, you know, dismantling toxic thought systems or, or taking away socially boycott? Like do all of these things work for our end goal of justice? And what I, what I found was that it truly doesn't, if we're looking for our end goal of justice, we need to seek rehabilitation. We need to be looking at people, not like they're lost causes, but that they have the potential to learn and become better. And we need to allow them the space and the time to do that. And I wasn't allowed that. Um, And that's given me this kind of fire, this heat to go out into the world and go, look guys, we need to seriously um, interrogate why we're doing what we're doing right now. And I still have so many conversations about this with people who who really believe cancel culture is a really good thing. And I understand why they do. But when we really analyze and really observe what's going on here and what's at stake, our humanity, people will not look at it in the same way.
1: Yeah.
0: Because if you were given the opportunity to, like, understand and, like, essentially radical – they use radical empathy on you, it would have made a bigger impact too to other people. Mm -hmm. I think when you cancel someone – they might not learn or have given, be given the chance to learn why what they said or they did was wrong. There's no
1: growth. There's yet.
0: no growth. And also other people that might be thinking like them will be like, oh, fuck that. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because these people are crazy and they're just going to cancel me. I don't need a change. But mm-hmm. when you come at it mm-hmm. from a mindset of radical empathy – there, there can be change on on both sides, and it's a ripple effect of change, mm. not the opposite. So I'm really excited to read
1: your book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> was it hard for Thank you, you, you to? Yeah, and I oh, would. Sorry, add, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say I would add to that um, that when when we feel like we want to cancel someone because I've had those gut reactions before. People say stupid shit all the time. They just do, and we're like, God, fuck them. You know, why would they say that? But when we are reacting from that space, um, we need to take a breath and we need to ask ourselves, are we looking to cancel them to serve wider discourse or are we looking to cancel them to create an enemy? Because if you want to create an enemy, that's very easy to find. Everyone can become an enemy. We can, I mean, I could have made a million people an enemy for me up to this point. I could have hated everyone for something they've said or done. I could, I could still hate Kent and be going after Kent and be like, you little piece of shit, Kent, like mm-hmm. I'm going to cancel you, get you fired from your job. You know, I could be doing that, but that's not the end goal for me. The end goal is to move towards a more compassionate, cohesive and loving planet. And if that's our intention, is your actions making that happen? Is your, are your actions affecting that intention? And if you're going out into the world and your activism is relying on canceling someone, A, that's not activism, and B, that's not creating the world that you say that you want to see. Creating the world that we want to see of love and tolerance and compassion means that you use love, tolerance, and compassion in your communication, even with your enemies. Yeah, that's that's so true. I
0: love that. Activism isn't cancel, canceling and cancel culture. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people have been calling themselves activists on social media, especially in the last, like three, four months, and really all they're doing is just canceling and calling people out.
2: That is not activism. Activism is sometimes the harder work of uh, finding out what we can do to bring – the, you know, the wayward sheep back into the herd? What can we do to bring them back into a world of love where they, where people are healed? How can we heal people? How can we move into a better world? And we're not going to do that by furthering divisions, deepening the divide, labeling people as, you know, other or enemy, not taking perspective, You know, like that's just not going to work. That's not going to get us there.
1: Sometimes I feel like they don't want us to heal because it's easier to control people when they're not healed and when they're they're not in their truth. And I think that's such a bigger, more powerful force that sometimes I get scared a little bit about that. And I mean, call it system or call it, I don't know. But um, I think that social media is such a great tool to like you know, talk about Mm -hmm. this as much as we can and just really use our voice and amplify other people's voices. And I do really believe in that more than like, you know, more, um, I don't know, official kind of like Mm -hmm. mediums. I feel like it's so important to use our platform for that. And I, and I know you do that. And was it ever difficult to like start talking about these things or like to be open about what happened to you? And was it like, um, did you feel like it, were you, how did you feel when you started doing that?
2: I felt super vulnerable. I I felt really overexposed, like really raw. Um, I felt totally uncomfortable doing it. I felt, you know, the Brene Brown, what she says about shame is that the last thing that shame wants is to be exposed. Shame Mm -hmm. cannot survive in the light. It can only survive in the dark. And so often when we are feel ashamed about something, we just don't bring it up because we think, that's going to make other people not love us. And what's funny about it is like when we actually open up about our shame, it makes other people love us because they see us as, um, you know, human and they see our vulnerabilities and they see our softness and our weakness. And, and we connect, we connect more than anything else over those things. So at first for me, when I started talking about it, I was like so embarrassed and so like, I can't believe I just said the stupidest thing and like I got canceled and people hate me. I can't believe people hate me. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want anyone to know about this. And as years have gone by, I kind of think at this point I've learned too great a lesson from this to not speak about it. Like I think a lot of the times our suffering and our misery and our what we think is the worst bit about our stories ends up being the best testament for other people. It ends up being the story that saves other people's lives in the future, the story that like goes on to set up an empire, you know, changes the world. And if we're all just so scared to speak about the times that we failed, we would we would lose so much as, as humans. So for me now to talk about it, I mean, yes, there's still moments where I'm like, Oh God, I really don't want to bring this up. But I also know that I feel so much better when I do. And I feel so much, um, I feel, I feel like I'm closer to being healed from it. And I feel like if I can just be completely honest and open, people are going to take that anyway, they'll take that, but that's not really about me at that point. That's, that's about you know, everyone else, it's, it becomes more about, you know, their, what their issues are, their back traumas, whatever. All I can, all I can be is try to be, um, loving to myself, loving to others and really honest about where I've been and, um, the struggles I've gone through and pray to God that that help. you know, that helps someone else in some it way. Will.
0: Yeah. As long, you know, you're aligned with your purpose and your passion and your truth, it, it will, and it, it'll go a long way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I have another question for you. Um, When do you feel the most real?
2: The most real? Yeah. Mm. I think I feel the most real um, when I'm in nature. And um, I'm just thinking back, like, what that word brings up in me. There's, the, It brings up a couple moments. One is a time that I did breath work um, in Bali and I was on my yoga teacher training and it was like the third breath work session we'd done. And I was just, I, this was after my cancellation. My, I was hashtag canceled. I was dealing with so much trauma from that. And I'd gone there with my husband and our relationship was on the brink of like divorce. We were just like not doing well. And I did this breath work for like 30 minutes and I just lost it. Like I was crying and screaming and wailing and sweating. And I just woke up in this pool of my own sweat. And like, I, I, sat up and I was just, it was just felt so raw. Like I couldn't even explain it to you. And then my husband came over and he hugged me and it was like the most connected bonded hug I'd ever felt in my life. And I just remember at that moment, like knowing I was going to be okay and knowing that I kind of just left my healing and my, my wellness into, I left it in sources hands. And I said, look, I've let something out of me now and do what you will. And I walked into the um, Bali jungle outside the teacher training. And I just heard the birds and the, the frogs and it started to rain. And there was like wind going through the pond. I heard these monkeys and I was just like, wow, like I feel so at one with universe right now that that's the moment I felt the most real for sure. That's beautiful. That's
0: beautiful. Where can people connect with you, Allie? Where can they find you and hopefully when can they expect to read your book?
2: Um, they can find me on my instagram it's at underscore t underscore cutler um, or they can listen to my podcast the love you give um, the book is i think now that i i think so we're searching for a publisher now, so it could be anywhere from six to twelve months i'm not I'm not really sure um but it's on first draft edits and I hope it comes out as soon as possible because it is so topical and so timely and so relevant. Um, but in the meantime, I will be doing talks about it. I will be posting about it. Um, and I have talked about it many times on my podcast. Um, yeah, those are the ways to find me.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so so much. much for coming on. We so, so appreciate it. Of
2: course.